been yet another harrowing week here in Santa Barbara. The violence and destruction we have seen from the torrential rain and mudslides was unimaginable a week ago. Long-term residents of California know our cycles. We knew that large rains last year could lead to fires which paved the way for mudslides. But that familiar cycle has been exacerbated by climate change, such that the fire that we anticipated ended up being the largest wildfire in the state's history, and the flood that came tore houses from their foundations and flooded the freeway miles away from where authorities expected damage. Like many of you, my phone has been pinging and dinging repeatedly with concerned friends and family from around the world. The media descended upon our town, and for a brief moment, our plight was transmitted to the entire planet. That media spotlight has already shifted away, and the hard work continues here. In April 1963, that same media spotlight shone on the city of Birmingham, Alabama, where nonviolent direct action led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference met the fire hoses and nightsticks of the Birmingham Police Department, led by Chief Eugene Bull Connor. These intentionally confrontational tactics were the brainchild of the Reverend Wyatt T. Walker of the SCLC, and they were augmented by strategist James Bevel's decision to include children and young adults in the demonstrations. Those crucial decisions brought worldwide attention to conditions of racial inequality that were otherwise unacknowledged. They made the unknown known. Precisely what we celebrate in the season of Epiphany, the divinity of Jesus revealed the unknown made known. Today, the lectionary takes a sidestep from the Gospel of Mark, our Gospel for this liturgical year, and it jumps to the Gospel of John. I suspect it does this because Mark's Gospel is shorter, it's more immediate, it's succinct. John's Gospel fills in the gaps in the lectionary where, where the, with its long dialogues. In this case, John's Gospel gives us a glimpse into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So last week in Mark, we read about how John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan, right? In John's gospel, that doesn't happen. In John's gospel, Jesus comes out fully formed. No infancy, no baptism. Jesus is a superhero right from the start. Here in the very first chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is already doing things he will never do in Mark's gospel. This is omniscient Jesus. He sees the future. He knows the past. This omniscient Jesus 
even knows people he has never met. At first glance, this story seems to be saying, you better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town. But I don't think that's the meaningful takeaway from this story. Let's rewind and go over it a little bit. This is essentially the story of the calling of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's buddy, Philip, comes to him and says, We found him. The one we've been waiting for. The one who's going to change things. The one that people have been waiting for forever. His name is Jesus, and he's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. And here, Nathaniel delivers that classic line. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In our context, this might sound a bit more like, can anything good come out of Vegas? Or Birmingham? Or Washington? Or as it was paraphrased this week, can anything good come out of Haiti and Africa? Why do we want all these people from African countries? It's heartbreaking. But Nazareth was less like Washington and more like Lompoc or 29 Palms. It was a small town with a strong military presence. Nazareth was in the middle of nowhere in terms of biblical history. It was uh, not like the capital of Jerusalem. It wasn't in one of the prominent regions like Benjamin or Judah. It wasn't even in the capital of the northern kingdom, Shechem. It wasn't in Mount Carmel. It wasn't in Jaffa. It was way up north in nowhere. In Jesus' time, Nazareth was six kilometers, a short walk from the town of Sepphoris. Sepphoris was the Roman administrative seat of Galilee, an army base. Just a few years before Jesus was born, Jewish rebels attacked it. And in response, historian Josephus says that the Romans burnt the city to the ground and sold its inhabitants into slavery. The Romans doubled down on their military presence in that region. In light of that history, we return to Nathaniel's comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not just a jab at a small town or a place with no notoriety. The comment sheds light on the imperialism and militarism that dominated the cultural landscape of Israel at the time of Jesus. Just as the comment says a lot about Jesus' hometown, it also tells us a lot about Nathaniel. He calls him like he sees him. He doesn't pull any punches. Or as Jesus says here, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel tells it like it is. He's the friend that's going to tell you when you've got some food in your teeth or something stuck on your face. That's why Nathaniel's testimony is meaningful. He's not going to exaggerate. He isn't prone to hyperbole. 
So what is it that changes Nathaniel's mind about this guy from Nazareth? What makes the straight shooter say, you are the son of God? That moment of epiphany. What convinces Nathaniel? Being known. Being known. Where did you get to know me? Nathaniel is saying, yes, I do tell it like it is, but how do you know that? How do you know the defining characteristic of my identity? How do you know me? Being known is one of the greatest things in life. And it is so rare. Of all the people we meet, all the people we go to school with, work with, live with, paths on the street, of the 7.6 billion people spinning around this globe with us, only a handful really get to know us. If we're lucky and we work hard on it, maybe we get to know a few dozen people in our whole lives. But those relationships define us. They can be our greatest comfort. When you're with people you know, there's no need for backstory, no need for excuses, no judgment. They understand. They can also call you out. They can say, that was really dumb, what you did. People who know you can tell it like it is. They can do that because you trust them. They trust you. You know they want the best for you. When I was a kid, um, in the years from about second grade to sixth grade, we did a lot of uh, church shopping, a lot of hopping around in churches. And I got to see a bunch of different denominations. Uh, and I got to sit through some seriously horrible services. Um, I went to a lot of random Sunday schools as well. Um, there were always kids in those Sunday schools who knew each other, who knew all the games, knew all the stores, knew all the songs. As an outsider, I was not a huge fan of most of those songs, except one that I learned at Carmel Press. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God, and knoweth God. He who loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. I talked to Mary Beth years ago. <laughs> you probably know the words, even if you don't know the song or the verse number it quotes at the end. I love that idea that God is love and that we know God when we love. When we don't know God, when we don't love, we don't know God. It is simple and powerful and true. It's probably why I love that psalm so much, Psalm 139. It depicts the intimacy and familiarity of God's love. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
I like the implication that part of loving is knowing. We love by getting to know someone, by noticing, by being aware of who a person is, what challenges them, what excites them, what is and was and will be hard for them. Knowing a person's suffering and their joy. So much of what the people I admire most do is they share their love, either for someone or something that they have come across. Everyone does this. Teachers passing on their knowledge, musicians sharing their experiences, film directors, artists. That shared work, that work of shared love expands the world around us. As the poet R.P. Blackmore says of good poetry, it adds to the stock of available reality. I love that. I heard that phrase um, as related to a line from an elegy by a poet and Episcopal priest, Spencer Reese, um, who was at YDS with me, and I actually played the music in his uh, ordination. But he's, a, he's an amazing poet. Um, the line Spencer wrote is, all in this elegy, said, all I know is that the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. It's so simple. But when love enters our lives in one place, our capacity for love expands. It balloons. We see that with romantic love and we see it with social justice. This is what Dr. King did so well. He ballooned the world's love. He did that by shining a light on unknown conditions. As he progressed in that work, Dr. King's love spilled over. Toward the end of his life, his work included care for the environment, anti-consumerism, and anti-militarism. The love he practiced and knew broadened his ability to love in general. God is constantly inviting us to a greater love. To share the love we have and allow it to spill over into more and more love. Around us until we make it known that everyone and everything is loved and nothing can change that. Amen.